Hello, this is Max Krieger, along with Doyle Baxter, for part two of our Interviewing Each Other series. Um, yeah, Doyle, what do we have coming down the pipeline? Down the pipeline? Well, we are um, slowly making our way through Aristotle's metaphysics. Really proving to be, you know, just kind of light years more difficult than I even remember from college. Um, I think probably as a result of being a better reader, I'm able to better determine what's actually really hard. <laughs> and uh, this book is, it's just really complicated, you know, because they'll talk about like one, you know, unified topic for a big solid chunk of time. And then there's like a one sentence transition and all of a sudden you're in something else. And if you missed the transition, you're just lost. So it's a lot of rereading, a lot of highlighting. I've been listening to it on audiobook as well. Just trying to get a good handle of it. Yeah, it's it's really at least the first two books are absolutely brutal to get through. But so, and yeah, then right after, up, that that'll probably be that that podcast will be in a week or two. Um, and then after that, we're doing Marcus Aurelius' meditations, which I am very very excited for. Yeah, I think we're hitting Lucretius first. Lucretius uh, Virgil, and then Marcus Aurelius. Epicurean Stoics, Romans. Got it. They're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Um, other quick housekeeping. Uh, anyone who's listening, please feel free to leave feedback on any of our videos. Uh, I don't know if we'll do a segment moving forward where we address feedback, but we would love to improve the podcast and the listener experience. We always throw this in at the end. So um, please feel free to leave a comment. Um, we would love feedback and seeing how we can improve your experience on book podcasts, the specialists, etc. But let's jump right in. Um, so, Doyle, um, let's start. If you want to just give me a brief background of where you grew up, um, where you went to school, kind of family you grew up in, just give me a general outlay of where your life began. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, a little suburb called Zionsville. It's on the northwest side, and I still uh, live here today. Um, I actually have lived in the same house my entire life in uh, central Indiana. And actually just in a couple of months, I'll be moving out. So that'll be kind of an end of an era, you know, the first 24 years of my life in one place. And now we're moving on. Um, so I grew up in a religious household. Um, it was always a very, um, it was very important to kind of the fabric of our family. Um, one of the, and I should say we were Catholic, the, the one rule we had in our household growing up and it was one that I really liked was practicing your faith is not an option, which is to say, as long as you're practicing your faith, that's the only rule because it presupposes all of the other things that you should be doing in your life. And I think that, you know, even without knowing it, what my parents had institutionalized was very much something along the lines of what Jordan Peterson talks about in his 12 rules for life, which is where you need to have codified rules for children they need to not be overbearing and they need to be simple to remember so that you can actually exercise them and follow them. So that was great. I have one older brother. His name is James. He's um, about three and a half years, my senior, um, four years in school though. So the only time we were in the same school was when I was in kindergarten and he was in fourth grade. I um, mean, it actually turned out to be quite uh, the perfect distance because we were just close enough that what was going on in our lives was relevant to the other, but we were far enough away that we had a certain level of, um, I don't know, distance to be able to truly provide 
whether it was, you know, advice or comfort or whatever the situation was, um, it just kind of was perfect. Um, you know, early on, he and I, we had a pretty rocky relationship, um, you know, how those teenage years can go. But ultimately, um, once he got out of high school, he and I really became the best of friends very quickly. And that has, um, you know, stayed the same ever since then. He, my, my brother is absolutely my best friend. Um, he's going to be my best man at my wedding and I'm his best man at his wedding. Both of those are on the calendar, by the way. So that's exciting. Um, gosh, what else? So I went to a high school called Zionsville community high school ranks pretty highly in the state of Indiana, even amongst private schools. Um, I was really grateful for my education after the fact. I didn't really take school seriously though, until probably my senior year in high school. Um, I was always with the um, overachieving students and I tend to tended to regard my colleagues as overachievers. You know, so I was in the honors courses in middle school and the AP courses in high school. And, you know, I kind of thought all my classmates were just a bunch of show offs and um, I don't know, overachievers. I, I didn't do, do homework much and I tended to, to look down upon my colleagues who were very good in school. So I managed to get by with a decent GPA, even though I didn't really um, apply myself all that well. <laughs> and frankly, once I started to take school seriously in my senior year of high school, I was taking AP physics and um, AP English language and AP Calc BC and a bunch of all these classes. And I really un like I started to understand this whole learning thing and this whole school thing was actually something I really enjoyed and, you know, just had a, an aptitude for it. And I was kind of immediately struck bit with a regret that, oh my gosh, I could have taken this so seriously. And like, I had all of these great opportunities and I took all these great classes and yeah, I learned some things, but I could have, you know, been far better than I was. Um, and ultimately I think it was that the fact that I didn't try so hard in high school really motivated me in college to, to be the best student that I could be. Um, and I like to think that the net net was positive and uh, I learned a thing thing or two in the uh in the experience yeah I, I really don't think i had that realization until senior year of college <laughs> so i might put you five years ahead but um we we talked uh in the previous podcast about sort of the moment i started thinking and i was wondering if maybe in middle school or high school there was a subject or thought that really drove you into philosophical thinking like the first thing you really thought about yeah, so this is kind of a fascinating story. So there, there was um, a Phil and Theo club in my high school, right, philosophy and theology. And I went um, as a freshman to the first two or three meetings and then stopped going because I was conservative. Everybody else was liberal. I believed in God. Everybody else was an atheist. And frankly, I thought all of them were dumb. <laughs> but... I encountered, and I don't know whether it was there or just in popular culture, or maybe it was some kind of combination of the two, but it was as a freshman, I really took seriously Descartes' proposition, I think, therefore I am. Mm. And take in, take in mind, I had never read Descartes. I had no idea what the context for that phrase was. I had never read a philosophical text in my life. Um, but I was really captured by, yeah, I think, therefore I am. 
And I think part of the reason why it was so interesting to me was, you know, at the time in my naivety, I kind of equated the the senses as the very beginning of thinking. And I assumed that that's what Descartes meant. And obviously I come to find out that I was totally wrong, but I had this really deep sense that, yeah, I wanted to write a book someday in my life about the five senses and how they form the bedrock of knowledge and how you can't write anything or say anything really before you have a pretty robust account of sensation and your experience of the world, which as I reflect back on this idea that freshman Doyle had, it's, it was actually, you know, pretty profound. Um, but anyway, I took that, that notion. I think therefore I am as sort of a first principle. And I attempted to build out a system based on like a premise, premise, conclusion, sort of philosophy to get down to, you know, more or less more germane, uh, propositions, right? Like, God is, and God is good, and I am, you know, the son of God, and some some of these, you know, beloved son of God, and his creation, and he loves me, and all these other things. And, you know, I haven't gone back to look at that in uh, in the very recent past, but I do remember what was so fascinating about it was, you know, like, I went on for about six pages of single, single space type, and it's like, I was a freshman, and I'd like really, really developed this system that was ultimately flawed in its premise for multiple reasons, right? It was, I was understanding, I think, therefore I am in a completely wrong way. And two, you know, the, the Cartesian method is a sham anyway. So <laughs> it's, um, it was problematic for a number of reasons, but it was also kind of probably my first foray into uh, philosophical thinking, thinking on my own, those sorts of things. I, I do want to get back to uh, your relationship with Descartes because I think that's absolutely fascinating. But I did have a question written down, and you had a theology philosophy club at your high school, and the question was: Do you see theology and philosophy as separate disciplines, and has that changed over time? So I this would be a great place to throw that in. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you see them as the same thing, and do you see them as the same thing now? Well, I mean, it's really, you know, apropos that you're bringing, bringing this up now, because in books one and two of the metaphysics, it's not really clear that there's a distinction between theology and metaphysics. And Aristotle more or less says that he's talking about the, the wis- wisdom, which is fundamentally the cross between understanding and scientific knowledge about those things which are most natural is something um proper to the gods and that a man who participates in wisdom is divine in so insofar as he's performing the divine activity. Um, so that like, I think there's a, and, and I ultimately I think Aristotle clarifies the position later on in the book. We haven't quite got there, but from what I remember of, of college and I think there's definitely on the surface and um, it's really easy to, to confuse the two with one another I think especially from a, you know, more or less fundamentalist Christian's perspective, um, if God is truth and God is love, and you just take those as your two fundamental axioms, you can actually build out a system that sort of has philosophy and theology woven together. But ultimately, I think I would say that the distinction between the two rests upon a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. Um, Without trying to toe too much of a Latin Averroist line, I think that what is natural um, 
is that which is explored by philosophy and that which is supernatural is that which is explored by theology. So theology can take for granted, you know, what exactly something means when you say that it's inspired or revealed by God or revealed through the tradition. It kind of can take those things for granted and use them as um, propositions in support of arguments or propositions against other sorts of arguments. Whereas philosophy, I think, has a far more difficult task. And I think it's so difficult that sometimes and oftentimes a true philosophy um, is impossible without first having some kind of theological position upon which you build it, right? So the first principles are those things that can't be demonstrated from reason, which is to say that they're not logical, rational, natural principles. They're assumed. Um, so they have something of the character of a divine or theological statement that you take as a premise from which you build out a philosophical system. So I would say that um, at the time, I probably assumed the two were the same. Now I see that there's uh, a pretty important distinction that you have to draw between the two. Mm. Yeah, I, I take the same position. I remember I was talking to um, one of my girlfriend's apartment neighbors, and I said I studied philosophy at Xavier, and she said, oh, my grandson studies theology. And I was uh, unbelievably annoyed at that comment. Um, <laughs> but uh, just going off that, you studied philosophy uh, at Xavier, here and I was I was wondering why didn't you study theology instead um, with the knowledge in high school that you were thinking about becoming a priest or yeah ultimately it was it was the fact that I wanted to be a priest that led me to study philosophy so um, a lot of people don't know this but um, college seminarians actually study philosophy that's what the church requires them to study and then they go on to study theology in graduate school and i had attempted to quote unquote enlist no I, I tried to join the seminary right out of high school and i was actually denied i was told that you know hey you know you're probably too immature you probably need to go to college and you know frankly i was kind of devastated by that um and that had come just a few months after being denied admission to the Naval Academy. And so, and I was going to go there to study um, naval architecture. So I was kind of left in this odd position where it's like, well, you know, if they're not going to accept, accept me into the seminary right now, I'm just going to do the same course of study that seminarians do so that in four years when I'm done, I can just go straight on to theology and become a priest. And that was sort of the rationale that I had um, going from high school into college. I, I should note too that philosophy was not the only thing I studied at Xavier. I was actually a triple major with classical languages and French. Um, and the classical languages is, you know, more or less for the same reason, uh, sort of a preparatory for what I expected someday to have as further, you know, theological studies towards the priesthood, Latin and Greek are pretty important, Latin the being the language of the church, Greek being the language of the gospels. And frankly, at the time, that's all I thought of those two languages. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the robust literary tradition or the culture or the history that the Greeks and the Romans had. So that was actually quite eye-opening and really a wonderful discovery that I made in college because I studied those things. Um, French, on the other hand, was a little bit of uh, a weird sort of story. I was actually um, I had visited a seminary 
um, with my brother, who at the time, I should note, was a seminarian. And I was going to various classes with him and with some of his classmates. And one of the classes that I went to was, I think, it, I don't remember the title of the course exactly, but it was more or less, you know, Catholic virtue in Western, in Western literature. And the day that I went into class, they were reading uh, Chrétien de Troyes and his romance, The Percival. And I would just love the discussion, thought it was absolutely super exciting. And later in the week, the, the seminarian who, had, who I had attended class with purchased me the book, The Percival, and gave it to me. And I took it home and I read it and was just enthralled by this story of this knight, Percival, who was questing after the Holy Grail. And I knew that it was written originally in Old French. And, you know, for some pride, prideful reasons, I decided I needed a triple major because my brother was triple majoring. And I was kind of between physics and something else. And that something else became French as a result of encountering the Percival. And so at the end of the day, I flipped a coin between French and physics and French one. So I ended up as a triple major with French classical languages and philosophy. Well, c'est la vie. C'est uh, la vie. <laughs> wonderful. So when was it in your um, development that you wanted to go into the priesthood? And was there something specifically that sparked that on? You know, it's tough to know exactly. I recall in, 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 in elementary school and in the fifth grade having just, I wanted to kind of go be a monk. And I don't really know how to explain it. Perhaps it was that, you know, once or, once or twice, my parents had taken me on a retreat to a Benedictine monastery in Southern Indiana called St. Meinrad. So it's the, 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 the existence of such a life and profession were not absent from my mind totally. Um, but then everything really changed in when I was in the sixth and seventh grades, we had uh, two new priests come to our parish who were traditional, young, conservative, super enthusiastic, super inspiring, and really devoted towards um, a mentorship and a fostering of the the male youths in the parish. And they started this group called the Knights of the Holy Temple that was for high school boys to learn how to serve the mass in a more traditional style, and then ultimately to be in fraternity with one another. So I my brother was a part of one of the first groups and I really wanted to join when I was in the sixth grade, but ultimately it was for high schoolers. And so they kind of, I wasn't allowed to join. Um, and so I just kind of doubled down on, you know, I'm going to take this really seriously. I'm going to take being an altar server really seriously. And I practiced and I read and got super into it and was always at church, always volunteering, always serving masses, just really getting into the sacramental life of the church. Frankly, you know, 2020 hindsight, probably in a really superficial way, but um, in terms of, you know, the appearances and the practices, like I was all about it. I was really inspired by it. It really lifted me up and motivated me. And ultimately those efforts um, kind of granted me access to this fraternity, the Knights of the Holy Temple, two years early. So when I was in the seventh grade, um, they allowed me to join. And that was a really remarkable experience of you know, being two years younger than all of these high school guys and really having the opportunity to be mentored by them and learn from them. And I mean, it, I think it really aged me um, in, a, in a really positive way. I think it helped me mature. And it also helped me to really kind of avoid the 
just the bad things that can happen um, in uh, you know middle school and high school as as a young as a young boy. We tend to I tend to have a temperament that's really easily amenable to drugs and alcohol. So um, I know the group definitely kept me out of trouble in in that way. But it was also just a wonderful opportunity to be mentored, and then as I aged through the group, the opportunity to mentor. And so I know that that, as well as the the two priests who, you know, both the pastor and then the priest who started the fraternity who were new when I was in the sixth grade, both of them, you know, were spiritual fathers to me. And I, you know, I, I frankly wanted to be just like them at the time and, you know, was really gung-ho about joining the seminary after high school. But, you know, the cookie crumbled a different way. And I think the Lord had a different plan for me in mind. And so here I am, an engaged man. And uh, super excited about that. So there's no regret in the fact that it didn't work out. Um, but I'm thankful for every step of the process of what led me there, right? Both the Knights of the Holy Temple and the educational track that I chose in pursuit of that. Um, both of those things were just critical in the development of who I am today. Okay, wow. Uh, there's there's a lot there to play on. I think I'm gonna have to do a lot of jumping back in time and forward in time. Um, but I, I wanted to ask the rather tedious, um, perhaps too open-ended question uh, following that. What was the process of discernment that led you out of the desire to become a priest? Hmm. Well, it's kind of a long story, and there's a lot of details that I don't really want to go into, um, just kind of for personal reasons. But um, I do want to say a bit about that. So I. So I spent my junior year studying at the University of Paris, the Sorbonne. I studied French literature and culture for a year um, over there in Paris, and it was just an absolutely wonderful um, opportunity. But for the first time in my life, I was completely living alone, you know, by myself in a foreign country, meeting new people, for the most part, you know, 90% of the time, speaking a language that I didn't yet know or understand. And you know, just kind of was dropped into a whole new world, so to speak. And after being there for six months, I experienced, a, I was there during the, the terrorist attacks um, in Paris. That the Charlie Hebdo? Or? Yeah. No, 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 the next ones, the, the, uh, the, the Bataclan Theater. Got it, okay. Yeah. So, so I was there for that, and that experience and, and a bunch of other experiences that I just had there really matured me. I, I, I like to tell people that I went to Paris as a boy and came back as a man. Um, I really learned a, a lot about myself and the world. And I saw, frankly, that, you know, human beings are really ugly, sometimes capable of doing a lot of evil things. And that really shook me up. Um, you know, for, it was kind of something of an ego death um, that Jung talks about. And more or less the building myself back up after those experiences. Um, I just wasn't the kind of person, I don't know when I say I wasn't the kind of person, but I just, who I was after that experience, um, you know, just led me in a different direction. And ultimately, not long after moving home from Paris, I met an absolutely wonderful woman named Morgan. And um, now we're getting married. So, I mean, it was definitely a process. Um, there, was, there was a lot of ups and downs. Um, in the down times when I was feeling really dark and depressed, it was kind of like, oh, well, at least I could go off and be a priest and life would be okay. Um, but I think as I sort of 
started to emotionally regulate after some of those negative experiences. Um, you know, I just ultimately realized that as I had aged and matured, um, that the Lord was calling me in a different direction. Yeah, it's, it, it's really interesting. Um, I, I also wanted to be a priest when I was uh, in sixth grade in middle school. I think for about six months, if that shows you the difference in dedication. <laughs> but do, do you feel that there's a kind of uh, naivete at that age um, in terms of what you said, in terms of our picture of humanity, our picture of the world and ourself within it? And it was the it was sort of crushing that hopeful spirit and rebuilding something new that was uh, the most crucial aspect of you deciding not to join the priesthood? I think it's something like that. I think that um, as a young kid, it's really easy to be a fundamentalist even without knowing it. Um, and I think that, frankly, because the the life of the priesthood is one of absolute dedication, right? It's like you're giving up everything to go do this. Um, you know, you have these fundamentalist desires because you're young, you're immature, and that's frankly, the the spirit of fundamentalism, in my opinion. So you see this lifestyle that, you know, is the archetype really of what you believe to be the only life that a Christian can live. So there's that natural attraction towards, well, if I'm going to be a good Christian, then obviously I have to be a priest. And I think part of the growing up process, part of the maturing process, part of especially spiritually you know, growing up and starting to understand your identity truly as a son of God. And it's not, not a fundamentalist sort of, you stick to these premises and dogmas. It's, it's a lived experience Christianity is, and especially Catholicism, right? It's, it's super nitty gritty. It's all about the sen the senses, the smells and bells of the liturgy. And, um, and, you know, frankly, the, the imaginative play that is contemplation and all these sorts of things, as you start to mature and grow up in that way, you start to see that the fundamentalism of your youth just has to die. And so as a result, um, there are, you know, I think there, there, there are probably a great many people like you and me, Max, who were just the same way growing up. And then as, as they matured and matured out of a sort of fundamentalist sort of view, realized that there are ways to be holy and good without um, ostentatiously dedicating your life and career to the faith and that there are ways of integrating the faith more fully into lay life. I, I do want to make a slight correction there, though. I agree with everything you said. You said it's very easy to be a fundamentalist as a child, uh, which means that hundreds of millions of adults never grow up. <laughs> but along those lines, um, I was wondering, uh, were you originally more fundamentalist in your interpretation of religion? And did that change at all? Um, and how would you define what fundamentalism is as opposed to uh, the alternative that you might now accept? Yeah, so I mean, that's that's a really difficult question, especially when you're kind of juxtaposing fundamentalist Catholicism with fundamentalist Christianity in general. Um, the latter is super easy to define, right? Those are your biblical literalists, seven-day creationists, um, you know, if you're not if you don't accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. Those types of people. Snake handlers. Say again. Snake handlers. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, Catholicism doesn't look like those things at all. If 
if it's done properly. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable. So insofar as I was able to look at a fundamentalist Protestant, I didn't think of myself as a product as a fundamentalist then, right? Because it's, I didn't believe in a literalist interpretation of, of the Bible. I did believe in science, the big bang and evolution. And, um, you know, I did believe that there was salvation outside the church, though only through the mercy of Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of all humanity. Um, but I think where I stand now is you know very different not from a um not from a standpoint of having a different faith or different beliefs but i think it's how those understanding that those the instantiation of belief in life can look a million different ways in a million different contexts and i think that catholicism is cool because it leaves room for this sorts of things and people don't you know tend to know this but it's you know, wherever the missionary spirit of Christianity through Catholicism spread, it actually ended up solidifying what was good about the cultures where it went, right? So it's like Germanic Catholicism, it looks completely different from Italian, looks completely different from French, looks completely different from, you know, frankly, South American and Central American Catholicism. There's a lot of room within Catholicism for kind of I don't want to call it a relativistic space, but it's that the the faith itself is really open to robust and diverse practices. Yeah. And I think what I, what I didn't see as a youth was that robustness. It was, you know, there's only one way to be a Catholic. That's to go to mass every day, to go to confession once a week, to pray the prayers of the, you know, of the breviary with frequency. And if you're not doing all of these things, then you're not a Catholic. And it's, well, actually, that's not true, right? There's a lot. So a lot. There's a lot more to it than that, and there are a lot of good Catholics who only go to mass just on Sunday. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a fundamental conception or misconception about Catholicism there, where you have um, liberation theologists, which are, you know, in some instances, essentially Marxists reading Marxism into the New Testament, all the way to the group that rejected Vatican II and kept their ultra-Orthodox or ultra-conservative sect. So there's just a vast difference in theological opinions within Catholicism. Yeah, it's a diverse bunch. Super interesting. And yeah. I mean, I think that that's coming out. I think people are starting to realize that more and more with Pope Francis coming on the scene. You know, Pope Francis really just, you know, he is a visible face of a part of Christian theology that has existed for decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, and only now that he is the public face of the church that you're starting to get some opposition more publicly to those sorts of things. It's like those debates have been going on inside the church for decades, if not hundreds of years. And it's only now that they're spilling forth into the public's public domain. And, you know, people kind of see that debate now as like an act of schism or an act of rejection of the Pope. And it's like, actually, no, this is just the life of Catholicism. Like we're constantly, um, I don't want to say fighting with one another, but we're constantly testing the limits of what we know to be true and to and the limits of what our faith has revealed to us. Um, I, I'm really curious, so I'm going to take a brief aside from your life and step into that current event. But I was wondering how you viewed Pope Francis as a Catholic, because I remember after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, he made an analogy to... Um, 
if you insult my mother, I'm going to punch you, and you can't insult the religion of another. And that more than annoyed me, made me um, have a great contempt for this pope in a way that I didn't have for someone like John Paul II. Indeed. So wondering is, as a Catholic, what is your view of this pope? And um, what is your view of popes generally, too? I know you've studied um, all the way into medieval philosophy and you have a good understanding of the history and chain of popes. Yeah, so I'm going to err on the side of being cautious here, but I also do want to speak my mind. Um, the fact of the matter is that when you elect a South American neo-Marxist to be the pope, he's not going to cease to be a South American neo-Marxist once he holds the throne. And that's just kind of the long and the short of it. Um, that being said, um, yeah, he is the pope. And so <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you don't want to openly, you know, speak against him, you know, just for the sake of causing scandal. And I, and I, I really do try to, you know, hold my opinion to myself when it's necessary, when I think that Pope Francis is doing foolish things. And I do think that he does foolish things quite frequently, but at the same time, it really is important to make the distinction that is so very much misunderstood within the church. And that's the concept of papal infallibility. So this notion was defined dogmatically by the first Vatican Council at the end of the 19th century. And what they held was that the Bishop of Rome, when seated on his throne, speaking according to a very particular formula about only two topics, those being matters of faith and matters of morals, if he is on his throne speaking about those topics, speaking according to this formula, then that speech is protected by the Holy Spirit from error. That is what the First Vatican Council said. Everything else, the Pope is completely just more or less a normal human being, right? So when he makes off the cuff remarks about politics, be it American, European, South American, when he's, you know, just making off the cuff remarks, even about theological topics, the Holy Spirit is not acting in such a way so as to protect his speech. So he can be an error. And I frankly think that it's our responsibility to, you know, call error where we see it and call it out. And I would like to see perhaps a little bit more vocal response, even from people who very much sympathize with Pope Francis's project, which is one that I do think has a lot of merit, right? The church, Catholicism in general, is about the poor, is about the downtrodden, is about those who have been pushed to the fringes. And that is, those are the, the people to whom our missionary efforts have to be driven, but not at the expense of a faith that is absolutely ancient that people have died for, right? And you don't, you don't mess with some of the, 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 propositions of the faith in such a light way when they're when there's so much at stake in them <laughs> and just to speak a little bit about you know kind of the evolution of the papacy so i did study um the ninth century um ninth century europe very closely in college i wrote a senior thesis on carolingian coronations in the ninth century namely charles the bald and lewis the stammerer but kind of in that time frame there was this really big debate going on between rural bishops and country bishops because at the time you know since really since the fall of rome in europe there was no such thing as a city in the way we think of it now it's like the maximum size of a city i think in you know through, from more or less the fall of rome up until the 1100s was there was no city greater than 10,000 people um so all the money was out in the in the rural areas with the farms and with the monasteries. So rural bishops had 
just this immense amount of power, you know, economically over the state of the world, really. And then as the low Middle Ages transition into the high Middle Ages, you start to see increase in sanitation, increase in health, better yields of crops, and all of a sudden the cities start growing. And economic growth goes back to the cities. And so now you've got these urban bishops who, for the past you know, 800 years have had no power because they wielded no economic influence, all of a sudden are really wealthy and really powerful. And so they didn't like the subordinate status that they had through the tradition received to these rural bishops. And so the urban bishops made, whenever there was a conflict with their rural bishop overlord, you know, for a couple of controversies in a row, they would say, you know what, I'm a bishop just like you, and we don't answer to anyone but the Pope. And ultimately, it was a power play on their part to level the playing field amongst all the bishops. And then the Pope sitting in Rome, and of course, being the politically astute person that he is, is, wait, you want to tell me that I'm now in charge of all of the bishops of Europe? Deal. <laughs> right? So it's kind of like just this historical accident of the way things developed. The Pope ended up with this, you know, beyond it's not universal authority of speech like to to say and resolve you know doctrinal conflicts because he's always been that you know starting as early as the the first council of nicaea they couldn't make a judgment without the um without the um, legates of the pope being there and so he was always a, a center center point on on matters of faith but then it's just kind of randomly in the middle of you know about 800 years ago, he ends up being the, the center of things, you know, from a legal and juridical perspective. And, and that power has only solidified um, in the last, you know, 200 years when Pope Leo XIII more or less made up the fact that St. Thomas Aquinas was the universal doctor of the church. And so his teachings upon what the Pope was more or less became canonical from a church perspective. And that, again, just solidified the the centrality and the central power of the papacy. I think, I think that is fascinating in the sense of how non-Catholics view the church, especially because the development of the church is so misunderstood. And you mentioned papal infallibility is one of the elements of that misunderstanding. Uh, but maybe it's my heretical nature, but I think you're being far too generous with Pope Francis, but I'll take your response. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, um, I'll do, a, I want to do another hard turn um, and sort of go back into high school. And I wanted to ask you whether or not you have seen your theology and philosophy. And I really liked your supernatural, natural distinction there. Uh, that's exactly how I distinguish the two disciplines. Whether you've ever seen those two in contest with each other in your development and sort of how that's played out. You know, do you think philosophy is um, hospitable to much of theology or is it oftentimes in conflict with it? And how has that played into your intellectual development? Yeah, so, gosh. When I read Marsilius of Padua and kind of learned more about Latin Averroism, the Latin Averroists just held that more or less philosophy was done and Aristotle had accomplished it all. And it was sort of like the height of truth. And um, so as a result, there wasn't a whole lot of room for theology when you were a Latin Averroist. And 
when I when I was reading this for the first time, I was actually really struck by it because they use that supernatural natural distinction um, to do something quite tricky. And they say, right, so the super so the natural corresponds with the rational, and so the supernatural corresponds with the with the super rational. But insofar as the supernatural the super rational is above the rational it's precisely not rational, which is to say that it's irrational, right? So they play this sort of game with the distinction that I made earlier to more or less consign theology to this realm about which we can know nothing. And when at the time in my life when I encountered that, um, it was shortly after having encountered Nietzsche, and I'm like, geez, I thought Nietzsche was the original thinker. It's like, no, the Latin Averroes had figured it out quite long before that God was dead. Um, <laughs> and um, I didn't necessarily agree or like assent to those positions, but I realized how um, powerful they were. Once you take away a final causality out of the world that is given by an almighty Godhead, you know, everything changes, right? It's, they, they pave the way for Descartes and, and, you know, maybe this is a good transition time to talk about that, but ultimately I've always held that Descartes is not the first pre-modern or is not the first modern. He's the last pre-modern, which is to say that, you know, Descartes is nothing but the product of Thomas Aquinas, Occam, uh, Marsilius of Padua, the other scholastics and schoolmen. Um, of the middle ages and that that's that Cartesianism really is the perfection of the medieval mind kind of in action. So I think, you know, to answer your question, where do they conflict? They conflict most, most especially in the soul of the individual, right? Because faith requires a person to assent to it. And when it's difficult to assent for a variety of reasons, it's really difficult to, to take theological matters or propositions at their face value, or, or to even like think of them as significant, right? It's like we think of, you know, like think of the mass, which whatever, contentious maybe, maybe it is to some people, there is no doubt, you know, there is, it is a fact that the mass is res solely responsible for some of the absolute most beautiful productions of Western art, literature, poetry, music, um, that it's just, it, it, you know, you can't, not but stand in awe with what the mass has produced in terms of its artistic output from people wanting to make it as beautiful as possible but when you're having difficulty you know just within yourself when you're having doubts about the the reality of god or the authority of the church or any of these other things that fact that i just spoke about loses its sort of significance and you're like well who cares it's just music it's just art and I've noticed that when, when I feel not well spiritually or theologically, I also am frankly not well from just a standpoint of being, right? It's like when, when, things, when, when things are not going well spiritually, it's the, you kind of result in a sort of nihilism. And I think that that's ultimately what Nietzsche was talking about when he talked about you know, God being dead. And I, I, I experienced that in my own life. And I think that that's really the tension there between philosophy and theology. It's that once God is gone, literally every philosophical notion that you've ever held 
gets pulled out from under the rug too. So you see these two disciplines as tightly married um, in your own experience. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It, it, to to the to to hold the exact opposite position of the Latin of Aroists, right? It's no, the faith is yes, yeah, super rational, but also but being super rational, it also contains within it that which is rational. You can't just like draw, draw a hard line distinction between the two. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think I think in my side of it, um, usually just without that first theological axiom, um, you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps without it. And so those those theological first principles really do give a a easier scaffolding for philosophy um, to continue. And you know, when you tie in ethics and epistemology and other facets, and you are a religious person, I don't see how they could be unwed or necessarily conflicting inside of oneself. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, there's no place that you can start that is not religious in some way, right? Because particularly being the Western people that we are, if we're going to start philosophy and pretend that we're atheists, we're going to start with some probably moral, probably rational, you know, supposition that is nothing but the result of the work that Christianity had on the European mind. Yeah. To, to quote Sam Harris, he says, uh, it's, it's an act of faith to get up in the morning and continue the project of human civilization. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so let, let's jump into the Descartes. Um, this proposition that struck you in high school, I think therefore I am. Um, can you talk about how that's developed, but also um, sort of alongside that, Descartes is sort of uh, the catalyst in some ways of the Enlightenment, though I think you can go back to Machiavelli and then uh, Bacon as well, although I'm getting confused whether Bacon or Descartes came first. I think Bacon, uh, I think Bacon, Bacon did come first. Um, so, okay, so Descartes. So I, I had more or less a philosophical love affair with Descartes when I was a freshman in college, um, which is super interesting, right? Because of that story I told you about high school being super attached to that I think therefore I am statement. Um, so it more or less went something like this. Um, I was in a theory of knowledge class. It was second semester of freshman year. We go in and the first day we're learning about Heraclitus or no, we were lear learning about Parmenides first. And you know, the professor is telling us about how Parmenides thinks that, you know, everything is being, there is no such thing as change, motion, or becoming, your senses are lying to you, you know, there is nothing but being, and, you know, that's more or less the end of the story, and I went home, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is remarkable stuff, it's like, yeah, I mean, everything is being, there is no change, motion, or becoming, yet my senses are lying to me, how about that? So then we go in, and, you know, I'm super excited, I can't wait to take more notes and learn more about Parmenides, and then the professor starts talking about Heraclitus and it's like, well, Heraclitus says that, you know, everything is flux. You can't step into the same river twice because it literally has changed what it is. And no matter how quickly you step your two feet in, um, turns out that, you know, your senses aren't lying to you because everything does in fact change. And so now you kind of end up in this position where the universe is not, it's always becoming, and it exists in this state of perpetual flux. And I'm like, I go home and I'm just like super upset about this. And like everything I've believed for the last two days has just been called into question. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, whatever. And so then we come back and we 
start reading Plato, who ends up being this like remarkable synthesis between the two. And then we then we move on to St. Thomas Aquinas, who kind of further develops but stands in opposition to Plato. And it turns out Plato made a whole bunch of mistakes. And I'm just like, dude, I can't I can't do this anymore. Like I've held five different philosophical positions in the course of three weeks. It's just too much. It's just too much. Um, so then we start reading the discourse on method and what was super exciting about it is that Descartes in the, like in like the some of the first pages outlines four rules that are going to guide his intellect. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, that's exactly what I need. I need some rules because I've I've been, you know, fibbed and fooled by Aristotle, Plato, Parmenides and Heraclitus. I need some to put some rules as a groundwork so that I don't make the same sorts of mistakes that I've been making. So I took vigorous notes on the discourse on method. It's not that long of a book. It's only like, you know, maybe 40 pages. And I read it like six times, like super got into it, was super on board with, um, frankly, everything he says in there, going from those original axioms about how he's going to direct his mind into the radical doubt, doubting everything. The only thing that I can't doubt is that I'm doubting. Therefore, I think, therefore, I'm doubting means I'm thinking. Therefore, I think, therefore, I am. Um, And then I can start rebuilding things upon which I can eventually, by discourse six, get back out into the world and make the claim that, oh, my radical doubt of the last few days has been foolish. And like, I can, I have a firm foundation in my first principle that the exterior world does in fact exist. And this is where people are super wrong about Descartes. Like Descartes doesn't doubt things. It's like, that's just the mechanism by which he establishes the truth of extended bodies in space. And so I think fundamentally people have a really superficial understanding of Descartes and that causes them to have a really superficial dismissal of him. And I think the fact, once you read all the way through the book and then you consider, you know, technology and what it's done for us today is more or less an indirect proof that Descartes was actually right about what matter is. It's purely extension that mind is able to apply its will to and create things like invent things and do experiments and build stuff. And that's meditation on first philosophy not discourse on method right no no no, that was discourse on method but so discourse on method is, is written um wasn't the radical doubt in the meditations it's in both so the oh, okay. the the discourse on method comes first and it was a solicitation written in french by the way um was written first it was not the first work in which he talks about the radical doubt but that's like a core tenet of the Cartesian project. Um, so it's it's written in French to be circulated around to wealthy aristocrats. The idea was that he was trying to um, get money for his experiments so that he could figure out how to make humans live forever, right? Because if we're just extended mo- matter in motion, then we can figure out how to perpetuate ourselves into eternity. And what was super interesting too, and I'm kind of just coming upon this as as we're talking about it right now, you know, one of the reasons why Descartes took those four rules for directing his mind, and there's something along the lines of, you know, I'm not going to hold anything to be true that I am not absolutely certain that it's true. Um, I understand that more complicated positions are made up of simpler positions that can be dissected and approached. I, I don't remember all four, but it's something like that. He did, comes up with those four rules so that as, just as a mechanism of alleviating what, what I had already experienced in those first couple of weeks of the class. You know, his, he, he too was educated by Jesuits at a Jesuit university. And 
left the thing thinking I've encountered so many different philosophical positions. I have no way which one is determining which is true. I need a method. I need a method to give me what's true. Um, and so it becomes all about the method of philosophizing rather than the content of the philosophy. And that's ultimately what your yields Descartes. So there was just like, just, you know, kind of some radical, um, well, just, just some interesting transformations in my intellectual development. Yeah. Do you, how do you view Descartes today? Um, yeah. Okay. So this is a tough question. I mean, from, from the mere perspective, like I just said about technology, the, radical expansion of technology the radical mastery and possession of nature that we have today you know it's like technologies in the year 2000 since the year 2002 has brought more people out of poverty in just the last 15 years than have ever been brought out of poverty in the history of the world you know it's it's re truly remarkable what technology is doing for us like we live in a great time it's any student of history would be either asinine or a fool to choose to live in any century about the 21st just objectively speaking it's the best most comfortable most healthy wealthy um all of these things um so it's hard to really say with certainty that descartes was wrong because frankly everything that he said would happen if we devoted ourselves to a view of material things as simply extended bodies moving in space that we could eventually develop the technology towards eternal life gosh i mean every year we're getting closer to that you know it's like and cpg gray is there on his channel doing three videos in a row about how if we just need to dedicate all of our scientific efforts towards living forever it's like well maybe descartes was actually right um and from a purely materialistic perspective, it's really, really hard to question that. And now what I would say, and this is an argument that, um, that I got from uh, Jean-Luc, is it Jean-Luc Marion? I think that's right. Yeah, Marion. His, he wrote a book called The Erotic Phenomenon. And it's a really interesting book. Um, I read it as a sophomore, I think. And what he says in there is that, you know, so say we, we depart upon the project of Cartesian doubt and we strip down the world and we, then we rebuild it up as simply extended matter and motion and, and all of these things. We actually build a world where we are radically alone, right? Because everybody else, like every other quote unquote mind in the universe is just another extended body that's moving through space. And then I question, wait, 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 if they are simply extended bodies of matter moving, mo moving, moving through space, then my body is just that. But that's not the way I experience my body, which is to say that the world that I have created with my mind is at odds with the world that is my experience. But according to the sixth discourse, there's no reason to doubt anything anymore. So if those two things are at odds, then the world that I've built is wrong, not my experience. Um, so therefore we need to start again and we need to rebuild the world upon a different premise because I think therefore I am wasn't right because it couldn't yield a, a material world that was consistent with the way that I experienced my own body. Um, so there's something to be said for that too. And I, I think that ultimately, so Marion was a, is a ph phenomenologist and i think that more or less 
that opened my eyes to the fact that you really need to take phenomenology seriously and that there is even a way of interpreting Descartes as the sort of father of phenomenology, even if he didn't know it, it's precisely because he produces a world without experience that we're able to take experience so seriously. Um, so I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I would say to, to answer your question, um, I'll answer your question in the following way. Um, Descartes was ultimately, ultimately held that there were two kinds of things or essences, and they, there were extended things like matter, and there were thinking things like minds. And in the meditations on first philosophy, Descartes goes to extreme lengths to define what an extended body is. There's the there's the thought experiment about the about the piece of wax and how I take it and it's hard and it's it makes a loud noise when I bang on it because it's hard and it smells a certain way. It smells like honey. And then I move it near a candle and it's not hard anymore. It becomes soft. It doesn't make the sound anymore when I hit it. And it doesn't smell like flowers anymore or honey. Um, so what is it that it is if all of those other qualities can change about it? Well, then the only thing that it could be is an extended body. And so he goes to these really great lengths to explain what the relationship is between the essence of an extended body is and its modes or qualities. And those were the sight, smell, shape sound it makes when it hits, those sorts of things. But then when he's talking about the thinking thing, the mind, all he says about it is that it's a thing that, you know, thinks, what is it? Thinks, wills, imagine, or thinks, wills, judges, doubts, imagines, and senses. And I think there might be one other, which is to say he just went and described a whole bunch of modes of the mind, just like the piece of wax that was hard, that smelled a certain way and that made a sound when you hit it, and then doesn't go on to do the same experiment about moving it and changing those qualities, which is to say, I think there's a really strong argument that Descartes doesn't believe in the mind at all, and that the project really was a sham to try to convince the world that if we treated the world as if it was just extended body bodies in motion, that we could do a lot of really cool technological things. And that's that's more or less my my opinion of Cartesianism today. I, I really wish we had time to take a deep dive into that because I had about eight thoughts during that that I wanted to dive back down. <laughs> but um, that's awesome. I, I really like that interpretation of Descartes. Just a quick question. Have you read Dr. Quinn's um, paper, Descartes' Latin of Heroism? I haven't. Oh, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting sort of esoteric dive into the discourse and the meditations. Yeah, well, I mean, it would make complete sense to me that, that he is a Latin of Aroist, just like Marsilius of Padua and maybe even Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, it was a, it's a really compelling paper, and I really enjoyed reading it, um, especially the way Dr. Quinn lays out evidence for his claims and does this super close reading of every line against every other line in the context of the philosopher's life. Um, but nonetheless, um, I did want to take some steps back and move into politics. Sure. Um, so I feel like we've covered a lot of philosophy. Um, I wanted to sort of know how you grew up politically, how your politics have changed and where your politics are at now. What has been your political development along with this philosophical development? Yeah, so my first memory of politics was my parents in 1999 watching the Al Gore versus George Bush debate, one of them. 
And more or less, I knew it was a debate. So I knew somebody won. So I just asked my parents, who do we want to win? It's like, oh, we want George Bush to win. It's like, okay. You know, and I didn't at the time know about the whole Florida voting thing and going to the Supreme Court and all that nonsense. And so I just knew that George Bush won and I was happy because, you know, my parents wanted him to win. So I grew up in a conservative household. I grew up in a suburb of Indianapolis that, you know, is frankly 99% white and 98% Republican. Um, so, so I grew up Republican. Um, but really early on, I started to develop my own thoughts on the matter. Um, so in the 2012, no, that's not right. 2008 election when Obama was running, you know, my parents wanted, um, I don't know who they wanted for president, but I wanted Mike Huckabee and, um, I, oh, I think they wanted McCain and I wanted Huckabee and then, you know, but I like had my reasons for why I thought Huckabee would be a better president, why he would be a better person to run against Obama, all of these sorts of things, you know, then in 2012, um, I was a fervent supporter of Rick Santorum. My parents were Mitt Romney guy, uh, you know, Mitt Romney supporters. Um, so, so even though I definitely received my Republicanism, conservatism from them, really early on, I started to really branch out and I wanted it to be something that I made my own. Um, so with the two candidates that I just named, Huckabee and Santorum, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are just thinking, holy, oh my God, this guy is the most far right, crazy Christian conservative in the world. And, you know, probably at the time that I was doing those things, um, I was maybe that. I didn't like to think of myself as a sort of a fundamentalist. And, you know, frankly, even now, I don't know that I would vote for different candidates precisely because the, the candidates that the Democratic Party puts up are just, you know, frankly, puppets for the leftist ideology that they use to garner votes to get into office and then hold corrupt politics to keep themselves there and enrich their friends and line their own pockets. So it's frankly, the reason I'm a Republican still today is only because the Democratic Party is just an, a cesspool of corruption that you know, I, whatever. It's just not a good thing. And I really have become sort of disenfranchised with the Republican Party. Um, I was hoping that Trump's election to the presidency, and I did vote for him, by the way, I was hoping that his election was going to catalyze a fracturing of both parties. Um, I expected that the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party was going to split from the Clinton wing during the election. And then I expected that the Trump wing of the party was going to formally split from the non-Trump party of the Republican Party. And then that the, liber the libertarians would suddenly find themselves on equal footing with four other parties against which to compete. Um, so voting for Trump for me was one, there was no way in hell I was going to let Hillary Clinton be the president. So that was important. Um, and two, I thought that Trump winning was going to be a necessary vehicle by which we would enter into a multi-party system. Um, luckily, Hil Hillary Clinton is not the president, but unluckily we do not have a multi-party system yet. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, and, and I do want to say a couple of words about, and maybe you can testify to this, Max. Um, so I, I was in France during primary season and I really didn't like Trump 
for all of the reasons people don't like Trump. And, you know, for the first time ever in history, the Indiana primary actually mattered. So, you know, I did a mail, mail-in ballot from France and I voted for Ted Cruz, not because I liked Ted Cruz. I actually hated Ted Cruz, but because it was more or less, he was the only one who could win Indiana and he had to win Indiana so as to slow down Trump. Um, and I thought for sure that Indiana was not going to elect or select Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. And they did. And I went to class the next day and I announced to my French, like all of my international student, you know, colleagues at the Sorbonne, like, Hey, I guarantee you that Donald Trump is going to be the next president. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a great moment with you. Um, This is one of my all time favorite Doyle moments which was, we were on the eve of the election walking out of Nietzsche class together. I think it was Nietzsche class. And we are talking by the side of the chapel. And I was like, um, I voted for Hillary. And just to give some context, um, I actually read Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, No One Left to Lie To, about Bill Clinton after the election. And I went, oh, shit. Like the Clintons are the worst kind of sociopathic politicians. And if anyone listening um, is still a fan of Bill or Hillary Clinton, pick up this book, read it, and then fact check it against anyone. It is the most devastating critique of who these people are that I've ever come across. And the fact that she was the democratic nominee for president it is an embarrassment to the democratic party and the country i mean especially when they had somebody as great as as uh you know sanders running against her it's like that guy would have been president today yeah and i think he probably you know he would have made a much better candidate against trump yeah um at the very least he would have represented the ideological views of the parties better than hillary did because she really is a um a political artist a relativist um basically a a hack in the most corrupt financial nonsense ways and that the clintons will do absolutely anything for power i'm pretty sure house of cards was written about the Clintons. Oh, it easily could have been. And I, I know the guy who wrote it said that it wasn't, but you know, frankly, I don't think that writers have the permission to say what their works are about and not about. And that's for the viewers and the, the art critics to judge. Yeah. But yeah, and again, highly recommend uh, No One Left to Lie To. You get things like uh, Bill Clinton bombing a Sudanese pharmaceutical plant uh, while Monica Lewinsky is on trial, which killed tens of thousands of Sudanese people to distract media attention um, from her testimony. It's fascinating sociopathy in politics. But nonetheless, this moment, um, we're walking, we're walking out of class talking, and I go, like, like, Doyle, you can't be serious. You think Trump's gonna win? Like, have you seen the polls? And you you looked at me and you went, No, 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 the polls are wrong. They're not <laughs> accounting for this, 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 and this. And I wake up the next day and Trump is the president-elect. And I went, holy shit. <laughs> the moment always stuck with me. You, you saw something about that election that nobody else could see. Or at least- I, I wasn't alone. Uh, who's the guy? Oh gosh. Who's the guy who made the movie Where to Invade Next? Michael Moore. Yeah, okay. So 
Michael Moore has this really fantastic um, kind of dramatic reading from a script that he wrote about why Donald Trump was going to win. Um, we should put a link to that in the description because it's really fascinating. Um, and so I didn't actually see that clip until after the election. I, you know, of course, was binge watching YouTube videos after Trump won, just consuming all of the victory videos that I could. And I, I you know, I encountered this one and I'm like, wow, that video actually really jives with a experience that I had, which ultimately led me to the conclusion that Trump was going to win. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, actually that summer after I got back from France, um, you know, I was thinking about these sorts of things and, you know, got really, really high in my backyard and sat down and just thought about whatever was going to come to my mind. Right. Cause I was just blazed out of my mind. And, uh, I was thinking about the election and it came up and I saw like really clearly in my mind, like the progression from farmer to, you know, the machines are replacing my job. So now I'm already poor, but I need to move to the city and be poorer and then wage compete against other people for like making five cents an hour. And, you know, then I go from the, you know, these terrible factory conditions to the unions. And then later the unions are advocating for this way of life. That's not at all consistent with like the morals that me and my family and my community live by. And I'm just feeling disenfranchised by, by them feeling disenfranchised by my job. I've not had, you know, I've not been on a you know, I've never been on vacation and it's like just really the down and out kind of person and how many of those down and out people there are in the world and where they came from. And I saw very clearly like, shit, man, like those guys are going to vote for Trump and there is no way that he can lose because he represents the opposite of everything that has screwed them over, you know, and not just them, but also kind of like generationally the lower middle class and even much of the middle class. So, yeah. So I just knew that Trump was going to win after that, after that experience. Absolutely fascinating. And I was amazed that you called the election in that way. I was super confident too. Do you remember? Yeah. No, you said it without blinking. It was, it was a very, I was just like, oh God, Doyle's gone off the deep end. Um, clearly not knowing anything about the Clintons or the state of the country. And now I'm much more reserved about my political predictions as I hope um, the far left media t is now too, which it doesn't seem like they're doubling, tripling and quadrupling down on nonsense. Oh, I know. <laughs> and it, it's going to bite them. Like, I mean, I don't know how long they can put up with the decrease in viewership that they're having. You know, it's like, thank God companies like Comcast that own like NBC and CBNB CNBC. And like, uh, they're basically like four media companies that own every channel. And, I just, I don't understand how long they can, three of the four of them can put up this leftist narrative and expect, expect to stay in business. You know, it's people do not agree. Yeah. And we, we see this new resurgence of conservatives that are getting millions of views on YouTube as well. Oh yeah. Fascinating. I mean, I think Louder with Crowder has 1.5 million subscribers and Ben Shapiro is um, on the iTunes top charts for podcasts. So you know, it, with the age of 
people doing what we're doing now, the ability for anyone to speak freely, they no longer hold a monopoly on the narrative. Absolutely. And I think, I, I really do hope it's going to be devastating and new things come out of it. I hope it's a uh, economic act of creative destruction. Yeah. Um, but um, sort of, I mean, not necessarily to wrap things up, but I had um, I had a question about ethics and then some rapid fire questions and then some crowdsourced questions, sort awesome. of to go back to uh, your story. So um, the thing that I think we've spent the most time doing together was ethics bowl at Xavier University. And then you were a coach on my team for nationals and you came with us with uh, alpha team as we call ourselves to nationals. Um, but th my question was, do you see ethics as coming more from philosophy or religion or is this question nonsense? <laughs> um, gosh. Well, I'm going to, I'm just going to say, I think that, I always was really annoyed by the study of ethics in philosophy because, you know, I was a young kind of philosophical sort of person and we don't care about the practical. We just want to indulge ourselves in the theoretical all the time. And like, that's what's so wonderful about philosophy is that there is an enormous literature about the most, you know, arcane topics that if you want to pursue yourself down them, um, you can go down them and you can talk about, you know, well, whatever. The point is, is that ethics is last for philosophy, but first for humans, right? It takes, philosophy has to first find its first principle and then na navigate through the premises that derive from that first principle. And ultimately you have to act in the world. And then you've got this intellectual fr framework upon which you can make assertions about what's right and wrong. But the human being, as opposed to the philosopher, has a far different challenge. It's I wake up in the morning and I have to decide to go do something. And the fact that I do one thing rather, rather than in another um, indicates um, categorically that I have a hierarchy of goods that I already subscribe to because I did the one thing but more, not, and not the other thing. Therefore, the thing I did was better at that time and place than the other thing that I could have done. Um, and so as a result, I think that, um, ethics is maybe even more fundamental than philosophy in a really significant sense, because it's already the basis of human experience. You're already acting ethically before you ever get around to ask yourself what you're doing. You already have a hierarchy of goods. You already have some sort of notion of right and wrong. Most of us have a Judeo-Christian one that's been inculcated in us through our culture, which is frankly the best culture to have ever existed in the history of the world that's resulted in absolute incredible miracles of both technology and freedom that is unlike anything the world has ever seen, right? So you're embedded within all of that and you act it out. And um, so as a result, I think that religion, you know, in some sense, because we are already enculturated in, in Western society, even comes second to an ethics. And it might act as maybe a sort of corrective measure on our hierarchy of goods and goods and bads or rights and wrongs, but, but more or less you're already doing ethics before you get to it. I'm glad it was a nonsense question. <laughs> um, cool, yeah, no, we'll just do a few rapid fire ones. I know we've been going on a while. Um, <laughs> 
but what is the most significant idea or belief that you've changed your mind on? Oh gosh, whether or not, um, whether or not when we posit the existence of other beings like God, angels, etc., whether or not we're positing an actual world that like a not like an actual place where they exist and dwell as opposed to being equally real and equally valid and equally powerful psychological ideas that live within the realm of the mind or the collective unconscious. Hmm. And uh, are you- I go back and forth on that one every day. So, but it's when I, when I realized that it could be the latter and not the former, that was a really marked shift. Hmm. Um, and in your intellectual development, what is the idea that you most suffered for idea or belief or study? Um, that caused you the most psychological or inner turmoil? Um, Well, it was definitely occurred while reading Nietzsche, and it was that every philosopher that heretofore, theretofore I had read, was lying to me for the sake of some um, table of morality that they held, and that all philosophy was just a sham for people um, to express their will to power to convince others to do what they wanted them to do. Do you still subscribe to that idea? Oh, I never subscribed to it, but when I encountered it, it radically crushed me. Mm -hmm. Because it's like all of a sudden I have to question literally everything I've ever read. And I've spent four years of my life dedicated to this craft. And all of a sudden it's been called into question in such a devastating way. That was was really tough. I think in our intellectual biographies, that's the thing we share the most. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, and these are the crowdsourced questions, um, but I really enjoyed them. Um, when was the moment that you knew that your fiance ought to be your fiance? Oh, this is great. So we weren't even dating yet. Um, we were like, we had just, like, we had gone on like one or two casual dates, but we weren't, weren't, you know, romantically, like we hadn't declared ourselves as boyfriend and girlfriend yet. And I mean, I must say that even before the whole, um, as a result of the the priesthood thing, I was really kind of had a negative outlook on male female relationships. I kind of thought they were just a waste of time, and all of a sudden, I found myself daydreaming about being married and seeing her walking down an aisle in a wedding dress towards me. And I literally walked, you know, ten minutes across campus and like sort of woke up from this daydream, and I'm like, "Holy hell, what's going on?" Um, so. From that daydream, I decided, you know, maybe I should start dating this girl. <laughs> and now, now yeah. we're getting married. So dream come true, right? Yes. At the pushing of me. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's right. Glad to contribute. You convinced us to date, even though I thought it was a bad idea. Yeah. And so did the social world in which we inhabited. But <laughs> those people didn't have real opinions. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned, um, just to turn towards a more personal note you mentioned not being accepted to the naval academy and middle school not being allowed to join that club although you were able to um later um it it seems like to some extent you've been through a significant amount of rejection with your plans in life and yet you continue on in um often a very driven and inspired way. So what what drives you to, or what has driven you to continue despite some setbacks? Yeah, well, I mean, it's 
my my brother mentioned to me one time it was a couple of years ago um he said you know doyle something that's pretty remarkable about you is that whenever you feel like it's your time to do something something intervenes and tells you to wait and you do it and you take it seriously that those setbacks had come in your way and you keep going forward and i don't necessarily know what to ascribe to it i i was reflecting upon you know just my life and everything that's happened to me my upbringing and you know the fact of the matter is is that just i've been blessed beyond belief with um with what i would call you know pretty decent intellectual skills pretty decent decent worth work ethic um you know and ultimately i didn't do anything to deserve those things and i know that right it's just like for some reason i can do well on tests and i can do well when a supervisor assigns me a task um and i know that that i'm not the i i am not responsible for those gifts and so it behooves me to take them very seriously and to follow them wherever they may go so i think that um even when what i particularly wanted to do with my gifts and talents and abilities didn't come to fruition i i really did feel compelled you know from a moral perspective to make the most of what i had yeah i actually think this is one of the strengths of having a theological position um because i know when when i've set had setbacks it's sort of oh this is this is just how the universe goes and it's it's fucking up but you um you have this natural resilience that i think is admirable and i think it comes from in some sense your faith it, would you say that that's true absolutely Wonderful. um this was from the long-haired beauty my cousin jacks he is going to study engineering and or physics hopefully a minor in philosophy at the very least um but he was wondering, what is your definition of intellectual success? What do you define as being intellectually successful? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, you're intellectually successful when you crack open your books to study and the time flies because you just are you love what you're studying or on the contrary you never quite get to cracking open your books because you are discussing the topics that you should be studying with friends while drinking or something like that you intellectual success in my opinion is just being steeped in the topics being steeped in the thoughts and the readers and living the intellectual life that is enabled frankly only by the conditions that we have in university education in the west uh, that is probably the only place that you can have something of intellectual success um to that extent because it's really you are responsible for nothing else um except for studying those things and so when you can derive just i'm talking about a metaphysical sort of satisfaction either with talking about those ideas or studying them or reading them that's that's what intellectual success is so it really is like a for its own sake project. Absolutely. Amen. If you're, I mean, I mean, like, listen, I mean, I'm a salesman for an internet of things company, you know, it's like, did I study the right thing in college? Hell yeah. I studied the right thing in college. You know, <laughs> um, as soon as you, as soon as you start 
reducing intellectuality, studiousness, and all of these other things to the purpose of finding a job as opposed to learning how to live as a human being in the world, then I think that you're kind of wasting your time. <laughs> Wonderful. And finally, um, tell me about the influence of music in your life and specifically given to me by your fiance. Um, Everybody Hates Me by the Chainsmokers. Okay, so this is a really great song. If you haven't checked it out, you should absolutely listen to it. But um, the Chainsmokers, for some, like, just as context, I listen to Coldplay and I listen to classical music. Like, I'm super into Vivaldi right now and I'm super into Beethoven. I love Wagner. Um, and for some reason, I am just enthralled by this chain, chain smokers music. Like, there's just something about it that's so catchy. And then they sing about like actually deep talk topics sometimes. Like some some of their stuff is just you know like way out there. But sometimes they really you know get to the core of an argument. But um, but the two songs, everybody hates me and Sick Boy. I think that whether or not they're in dialogue with one another, I haven't quite figured out. But they're kind of both talking about the same thing, and that's that if you're not contrarian, if you're not of the opinion that everybody hates you or that society doesn't regard you as sick, chances are um, you're way worse off than you know. Um, I think that groupthink, um, going with the flow, um, fundamentalism, over-orthodoxy, and all of these other things, those are, those are the sources of evil in the human life. And I think that ultimately um the contrary to them is being contrarian and it's going against the flow and it's having the audacity to question what is held to be true um but at the same time being humble enough to admit when you're wrong and i think those two things go hand in hand and i think that the songs both the chain smoker both everybody hates me and sick boy really do that well because um especially in sick boy it starts off that Sick Boy is like an accusation that people are yelling at him. And by the end of the song, it's a title that he embraces and proclaims proudly. Hmm. I actually found the same message in 21 Pilots' Blurry Face album. I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's wonderful. And it's, all, it's an album you have to listen to cover to cover because it's a full story, which I absolutely love. Um, rather than a pop hit. And I actually think the worst songs in the album are the most famous. Usually <laughs> the way it works though, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, again, I don't know what it is about the Chainsmokers, but I think they really tap in, besides the moral message of those two songs, They, I think they really understand the millennial condition and can express it in music beautifully. And And I think that that is the role of a musician and really of any artist is his his job or her job is to express reality the reality that he exists within in a manner that's both consistent to the individual artist but also consistent with the society in which he lives right so so the best artists are more or less just a mirror that's held up showing you what society looks like um and I think the Chainsmokers particularly exemplify those really positive, creative desire to do good in the world, desire to be meet, to be loved, and to love that we millennials just kind of have. And I think that those are those are the beautiful qualities that our generation have has, and they uh, they do a really good job of showing them. 
a conservative who's backing millennials. That's my favorite. Dude, like I'm telling you, it's the heterodox opinion is often the right one. It's like you can be a conservative and a Nietzschean and and all of all of these other things. I dare to dare to question, you know, and 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 dare to be wrong about your syntheses too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if I've learned anything else, it's that the more you try to fit two pieces together that like, so it's like, you know, you find something and and this is what I learned in Descartes really from the whole Descartes experience is that I found something in Descartes that was true. And then I had something in Christianity that I knew was true. And that was the Eucharist. So I wrote a paper trying to explain the Eucharist from a Cartesian metaphysical point of view. And it's like something syntheses just don't work. And like, that was an example of one, right? I wrote a paper ultimately saying that the synthesis did work. And now that I'm a little older and wiser, it's like, no, I was, I was wrong. But the, the more radical you attempt to synthesize disparate ideas, the way better thinker you're going to become and the way more interesting I think you're going to be. And cause then you know how to think for yourself. It's like, you're not a conformist. It's, you know, I tried putting together, you know, I tried putting together like like a good example of this is like I tried to put together um I really tried to understand like the philosophical underpinnings of national socialism once um it didn't last very long but I was you know reading Heidegger and I was really trying to understand like the 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 fundamental like metaphysical ideas that were at the root of national socialism and um it was a super interesting you know process and like for, as far as I could tell, like the philosophy was really consistent, but it's as soon as you instantiate that philosophy in human life, all of a sudden you're massacring un- the other races because, well, if your race is the best and it's all a, a warfare between the races, well, damn it, we're not going to lose, so we have to kill them all. Yeah. Um, it's almost um, as if the most consistent philosophies are also the most violent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, so it was... So, so, you know, a good project that I wanted to embark upon after that, but, you know, never really had um, the time in college was to try to understand um, what exactly could be the basis of nationalism if it weren't simply a matter of race, language, custom, etc. Right? Because I think everyone to a certain, a certain extent would say that you know, it's really good, a good thing that there's such a thing as the United States and it has the history that it has and France and Germany. It's like these countries that exist, these nations are good things. Um, but where and how do you draw the line between national pride, thanks, like Thanksgiving for your forebears? Uh, that's a really difficult question that I never really had the, had the opportunity to think pretty deeply about. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of Christopher Hitchens. Um, in a small way he was a biographer of thomas jefferson and he said the way that jefferson wrote was that the american revolution was not a revolution for americans it was a revolution for everyone in the world to claim Mm. and i think that that might be the stepping stone to a uh, more universal philosophy of politics that it has national pride but its national pride is also predicated in an idea that's universal, which is that we can claim certain unalienable rights by definition of being human beings. Yeah. Um, just to wrap up, um, I wanted to know if you know if you were talking to 
maybe someone who's just about to start their next semester as a freshman in university, a flowering intellectual, what advice would you give them, given your life story and given where you've come from, given what you've been through? Um, maybe what's the most central idea that you would give them for taking on the intellectual project in their own life? I mean, I would say soak it up. You know, it's like our society has given you four years to do nothing except for study, read, go to class and all of these other things. It's like you get some, you get summers off, you get breaks all the time and you are actually held in quite high esteem by people. It's like when you say, Oh, what do you do with your life? Oh, I'm in college. It's like, Oh, that's great. You know? And like, they think, think up of you. It's like, that is just a remarkable gift. And, um, you know, more than anything else, my advice to, a, you know, a, a freshman starting out would be, you know, have a lot of fun, but really be careful not to lose yourself in the fun. Uh, because it's really easy to come out of college being an alcoholic and that's not fun, uh, especially when you have to deal with it post post talk. Um, so go and have fun, but, you know, be principled, you know, it's like find the right people to party with, find the right people to drink with, you know, let the, let the root of all of your friendships be something of an intellectual pursuit. That's what you go to college to do. And you can have so much fun just getting shit faced and talking about philosophy or whatever it is, you know? So, um, you you know, soak it up and really, um, don't be hard on yourself because it's life is, there's plenty of time to be hard on yourself later. Yeah, and it's sort of the ability to contemplate the universe through these various disciplines. So economics, sociology, anthropology, English. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things that uh, college age kids forget, and this is something I forgot, is given the way that the brain develops, like your brain is in the process of a development. So you can really fill in those habits and those intellectual qualities and that information that will set a future. But more than anything, as you were saying, that you have the ability to contemplate human existence through so many frames, and that's such a gift. Yeah. Um, But nonetheless, thank you so much, Doyle, for uh, taking the time. I wish we could have taken deeper dives into almost every topic we touched on. I know, man. It was great. But yeah, uh, thank you for for this opportunity. I, I really didn't know what to expect coming into it, but frankly, the the discussion was able to lead me into a whole bunch of different places, uh, everywhere from, uh, gosh, high school through college, various thoughts. No, this was a good little road trip through my intellectual development. I quite enjoyed it myself, and I had to step away from the mic like eight times because I was laughing. So <laughs> it was also a wonderfully humorous experience yeah hopefully it was entertaining yeah so cool up next is the metaphysics and then de rerum natura by lucretius um thank you so much for listening everybody and again uh, if you can offer any feedback in the comments if you want us to go back and touch something um please drop a comment and we will make sure to do so we want to make this podcast as interesting and as engaging as possible Absolutely. And, you know, thanks for believing. And uh, this is another episode of Cryptosophy. Thanks so much for joining.